We continue on in uh, Jonah. I think this is lesson number five. Hopefully I titled that properly. Uh, and uh, it's all of chapter three. Right. And uh, it's called the salvation of, of Nineveh. So uh, for a little bit of review, and I know I haven't actually been in person in this class. I've been busy in the uh, at four weeks to do one lesson in the other class. So, <laughs> uh <laughs> And, uh, and so, but I've, I've listened to the recordings of the Jonah class and I, I think I'm, uh, up to, up to date on everything. So, um, we talked about the fact a little bit that, uh, Jonah was a prophet and, you know, there's a little question mark around that because he's so different from, um, from the other prophets. But, uh, it's important to understand that, uh, that a prophet Biblically is not simply someone who foretells the future, uh, but someone who speaks as the mouthpiece of God himself to mankind. And that's the reason that it's taken so seriously in, in the Old Testament, um, scripture that, you know, the test, it was a life or death thing. If you, you know, claim to be a prophet and, and were false, uh, it was, it was a death sentence. Um, because the prophet is someone who, who speaks God's words for him to mankind. So pretty serious uh, calling. And it's in Second Kings uh, 14.25 where uh, Jonah is referred to as, as a prophet uh, from Gath-Hefer. And that, um, that Joshua 19.13 is just another reference to Gath-Hefer. That's all that is. But, um, uh, but that, that Second Kings uh, passage uh, places Jonah during the reign of Jeroboam II. Uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and the events, uh, of this book took place around the year 760 to 780 BC. Um, and I'm not intending to totally backtrack and reintroduce the book, but the dates, uh, kind of play into, uh, things here. Uh, so, so Jonah, uh, Jonah stands out from the other prophets though in that, uh, he was sent far from the land of Israel to deliver a word from God to a foreign Gentile nation. Um, so, so his, his ministry that he was to carry out was much more personal, much more direct. Um, but he wasn't unique in, in his message. Um, because, uh, there were, while many other prophets spoke words to uh, surrounding nations, Gentile nations, um, uh, for instance, uh, Amos, uh, in chapters one and two, uh, deals with surrounding nations, uh, Zephaniah chapter two and Zephaniah two is interesting because, um, it's a, it, it also addresses Nineveh and the Assyrians and, and he came about 150 years or so after Jonah. Um, and so we can see here, uh, Zephaniah two thirteen. He says, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will take, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. And, and then the entire book of Nahum is, is actually, uh, completely about, uh, about Nineveh and, and Assyria and the destruction of, of Nineveh. And that's the first verse of the book there, the Oracle of Nineveh. Um, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, 150 years or so after, after Jonah's time, these, um, 
these prophets were were again prophesying the destruction of Nineveh, and uh, and Assyria was was uh, destroyed by by the Babylonians in 612 BC. So um, so Jonah wasn't necessarily unique in 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 his message. Um, he was earlier, um, and and it was and he had to uh, to bring it in person. He couldn't just write it down. He had to go to them and speak, and uh, and so Jonah was Jonah was hesitant as we've uh, as we've talked about. Um, Assyria was really a terrifying power in in Jonah's day. Um, uh, Nahum three one calls it the bloody city. Uh, woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. And I made a little listing there. I I woke up. I actually gave me. A, he actually gave me a little bit of a nightmare last night. I, I was envisioning <laughs> some of, yeah. some of these procedures, and mm-hmm. um, uh, this comes from a couple of different commentaries. But um, the Assyrians were known for for leading away prisoners uh, with hooks in their in their noses or or mouths. Um, they would chop off victims' heads, hands, feet, uh, eyes, and ears. Um, and and then pile them up just just to terrify their their victims. Um, the uh, one interesting thing is that they would impale impale people alive on on sharpened um, poles. Um, and and interestingly, that's what the gallows in the Book of Esther refers to. Uh, they weren't uh, they weren't eighteen hundreds uh, Western uh, cowboys. They were they were Assyrians, and they intended. Um, uh, to to impale Mordecai, that was Haman's oh, plan. Um, impale him alive. Um, they, and this was the part that actually woke me up last night. They would skin people alive. <laughs> I know. They would they would skin their victims alive. Um, wow. And then another thing they would do is gouge out the eyes of of defeated peoples and and sometimes send them into surrounding nations just to terrify um, <laughs> the next nation that they intended to conquer. And it was it was very effective, you know. Um, I I just noted there that this is actually similar to some of the things that we read about in the Holocaust um, of the last century, as well as as well as what we see today in in uh, some of the Islamic groups. Yeah. Um, so you know, so uh, so was Jonah was Jonah right to be hesitant? Uh, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I think I think most of us would have been. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, well, it, it would be like, it would be like the one of the Israelites in today go to Hezbollah in uh, yeah. in Gaza and start preaching yeah. the gospel. And maybe there yeah. are, you know, maybe there are Jewish people that are doing that. I don't know. I, but we watched this thing on uh, YouTube about this uh, one for Israel, and so I don't know. Maybe there are guys doing that. Our ladies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, uh, um. It's it's interesting to think about. I mean, it's easy to be hard on Jonah, but I I, I wanted to kind of relay some of that information about just how these terrorists, uh, you know, attacked. And uh, and I, I I can imagine I would have been pretty uh, would have been shaken in my boots. I mean, but in any case, um, what's interesting is that about uh, forty or fifty years after Jonah. Um, the Assyrians would come down to on the northern kingdom of Israel, Jonah's kingdom, uh, and and defeat them and take them into exile. That was in seven seven twenty two BC. Um, and and what's interesting is if 
if Jonah if hadn't gone, if Nineveh had been destroyed, um, how would that have you know potentially played out differently? I mean, we know God is sovereign in circumstances, you know, but from a human perspective, um, this was their national enemy, uh, their greatest enemy, and and Jonah, you know, even from a, from that earthly perspective, had had good reason to to resist, right? But let's not get too. I mean, that's kind of review material. So let's move into chapter three here. I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's only 10 verses. Um, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of to, uh, from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, "In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing." Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands, which we now have a visual for. Uh, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So that's the whole chapter, and uh, Jonah is a very concise book. Um, hey, Miles? Know. Yes. Yeah, just just a thought here. I mean, was it the view from Jonah 1, chapter 1, that God was to send Jonah to Nineveh to judge them because of their wickedness? I mean, this outcome's a little bit more than judgment, isn't it? Right, go ahead, though. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a fascinating chapter. It really is. And, uh, you know, you're right. In, 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 in the first chapter, um, God sends him to, uh, the way it's worded, there's cry, cry against it, um, you know, because of their wickedness, because their wickedness had come up before God, you know, um, I mean, I have that in my notes in a second here, so we'll we'll get to that. Okay, sure. But but uh, yeah, well, this is actually yeah, right here. So so the, the second call, the word of the Lord came a second time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation. And so there, there's actually a, a pattern in the chapters of Jonah that I found interesting. You'll find the the word. I mean, the the name Yahweh. All, you know, you see in all caps, L-O-R-D, uh, is, is common throughout the whole book of Jonah, but I, I discovered it that it's in the first verse or two of each chapter in, uh, in a bit of a structure. In, in chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Um, and then in chapter three, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And, uh, and kind of sandwiched in between there in, in beginning of the, uh, alternating chapters. It's uh, the words of Jonah to the Lord. So, um, 
one one, the word of the Lord to Jonah. Two one, uh, Jonah's prayer from the fish. And then here we're at three one, the, the word of the Lord to Jonah a second time. And then next week we'll see uh, Jonah's words to the Lord again. But what's interesting is up to this point in the book, we actually don't haven't been told what Jonah's proclamation is supposed to be. Um, uh, we know that it has to do with their wickedness from chapter one. Um, but as far as the Lord, uh, Lord, the Lord's words here this second time, um, he just says, arise and proclaim to it the proclamation, um, which I'm going to tell you. Um, and, uh, and it's not until he actually proclaims the message that we see the, the, the specific words that he was to bring. And, and I think there's, there's, a an interesting application in that, um, that I think Jonah wanted us to see in the way he's structured this is that his obedience to the Lord uh, should never have been dependent on what the Lord was asking him to do, but simply on the fact that it was the Lord who was asking him to do it. Um, and uh, so, so let's look at Jonah's response um, in, uh, in verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And um, there's there's an interesting uh, parallel again here with what we saw in chapter one. So in chapter one, verse two, God said, "Arise, go to Nineveh." In verse three, it says, "Jonah arose." But that's as far as his obedience went. Um, uh, he went the other way. Uh, but again, we have God saying, here, arise, go to Nineveh. And this time in verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Um, but but I have the question there. Jonah went, but had his heart attitude changed? And what's interesting, we don't really see that until next week. Um, in chapter four. Um, but I was thinking about this and, and it's something that as, as parents of, of young children, we, we see with some regularity. I saw it just yesterday. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if there's disobedience the first time around, um, you know, a, a good, a good spanking will usually ensure that there's obedience on the second command. Um, but, the, the hard attitude hasn't necessarily changed. And, you know, uh, the child may go about the task, but they may be sulking about it, you know. And, and I think that's exactly the case we see here with, with Jonah. Um, but that's getting into next week's material. I just wanted to kind of, yeah. you know, point that out here. Jonah Jonah arose and went, just as the Lord had told him, but he'd, he'd just been through a sound spanking in the, in the <laughs> fish. So, um, so obedience, but, but was there a change of heart? Um, we'll get into that next week. So the, uh, the, the word of the Lord to Nineveh in, in verse four, you know what, before we talk about the slide, it has something I didn't put in the slides, but if you're wondering about that Nineveh, the great city, um, it, it shows up, uh, in verse two and three. In verse 2, um, go to Nineveh, the, the, the great city. And then in verse 3, uh, 
Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Uh, well, Nineveh was the capital city of the world superpower of the day. Um, yeah, a little bit like, you know, Washington, D.C. or one of those cities. Um, but not only was it the capital, it was the largest city. Um, and I read in one place that it was for some years the largest city in the world, which makes, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the, if you're into math, um, it, it seems like perhaps a three days walk refers to the circumference of the city and a one day's walk refers to the, uh, across the, the, the diameter of the city. Right. Um, and your math will make sense there pretty quick. The 3.14, uh, <laughs> times the, times the, uh, the diameter. So, um, it could be what that refers to. A city that take three days to walk around would take one day to walk across. So anyway, not, not, not really important to our Bible study, but just, <laughs> just interesting to note. I mean, it's in the text, you know, yeah, um, good. points out that this is a, this is, in fact, it says it uses the definite article, the great city. Um, and so, Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, does seem to be clear that it was the, the the largest city at the time. But let's look at this uh, the word that the Lord uh, gave uh, for Jonah to to proclaim to Nineveh. Um, so here we finally see what what the words are that God God told him to to proclaim, and it's and it's it's, it's in in Hebrew it's it's just five words. Uh, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Um, and I wanted to ask a question, you know, is there, is there any hint of mercy in this message? Um, you know, I know, and this is kind of coming back to your point from, from earlier, Bob, uh, because I know that when I was young and, and heard this read and, and read, read this book, um, I wondered why Jonah was reluctant to share this message. And that's part of the reason I find it interesting that from chapter one, we didn't even know what the message was, except that it had to do with their wickedness. But yeah. because we've always known the whole the whole end of the story type of a thing, we we kind of feel like, you know, and, and we know we'll get to that next week. We know that Jonah understood something of God's character, but the message itself doesn't really seem to have a hint of, of mercy or or compassion in it. It's just 40 days. And um, and and you're going to be destroyed. And and frankly, I feel like if there was a nation I hated, um, I would have no problem going and and sharing that that five word uh, statement. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, but uh, but we'll talk about that that more next week because because obviously Jonah knew something of the character of God to know that there was. There, there was indeed mercy embedded in this proclamation. So, but the, the, the key, one of the key words there that it hinges on is this word overthrown in the English. I actually didn't really do a, a translation check. This is the NASB. Um, anyone have a different word for overthrown? Is there, is uh, overturned in any other translations or? Yeah. We've got overthrown. Overthrown. Okay. Well, he says demolished. Demolished. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Miles. So, yeah. Well, I, I do think there's mercy there. Um, they were warned again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're right. And that's 
Yeah, there, there, there is, there is. It, it, it was a warning, right? Um, and, and I, I, I wondered about this. Was there more to his message? Is this a summary of the message? Um, but as, you know, as we have it in the text, it just, you know, it just looks like you're going to be destroyed, you know? And, uh, but, but clearly the 40 days, um, is an interesting element to that in that it wasn't right now. It's, you know, there's a, there's a time period here, uh, before that, that, uh, Miles? Falls, yeah. I got one definition that says to change itself or to be turned around. So. Well, that's interesting. So I, I looked at the, the Hebrew word is, uh, hafak. I'm not sure exactly how to say that. Um, and the, and, and then we can compare that to the, the Jewish, uh, translation into Greek, um, the Septuagint, which is, uh, catastropho. Um, and, and both of those words are very, very similar, um, in, in meaning, um, uh, well, the, the Greek words were tend to be a little more familiar with means literally down to turn. Or to turn under, um, it, it it can refer to uh, plowing soil, you know, turning over the soil with the plow. Um, and but what's interesting is if you look at a, uh, you know, for the the Hebrew and Greek words that refer to destroy, it, it just you know you just look up the English word destroy in a um, in a in a Bible dictionary, and and they don't give either either of these words. Um, it's it's neither of them in their most straightforward meaning, you know, means means to destroy. Um, and uh, and overthrown is 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 probably a good translation. I, I do think overturned would be more direct, more literal. Um, the the Hebrew, some of the Hebrew definitions there on the screen to turn to turn oneself. That was that was interesting, but uh, to uh, turn back, um, to to change oneself, to be perverse. Uh, to be turned, be turned over, be changed, be turned against, to be reversed, to be overturned, be overthrown, or to be upturned. So you can get the, the flavor of it there. Um, but so how should we understand this message? Um, you know, it is clear that, uh, the message caused really, uh, great alarm amongst the Ninevites. Um, and, um, and then in, in verse 10, um, it, we see that the, the threat of destruction was real because it says God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. So, so it is clear both by the Ninevites uh, understanding of the message as well as the fact that God turned from the calamity that there was destruction was what was being foretold or warned against. Um, but God could have used a, a, a word, uh, a couple of different words that would have more clearly referred to destruction if he had wanted to. So another question uh, that maybe is interesting to explore anyway. Um, why, uh, why, would, why would God choose this particular word with its particular uh, semantic range, so to speak. Um, and is it possible that God intended the message to be somewhat ambiguous? Um, you know, it, it, it is it possible uh, that it's sort of meant to leave a question mark in the mind of the hearers? 
um, kind of you hear it and you think, well, are we going to be turned around or are we going to be overturned? Um, and and I, I thought of this analogy. It's, it's kind of like driving down a road in the dark and coming across a, a road sign that reads, uh, bridge out ahead, turn around now. Um, and you could kind of interpret that as, you know, turn around or be turned upside down. Those are kind of the options. <laughs> they all sound kind of similar, but very different results, yeah? You know, if you think about overthrown, you know, maybe the overthrowing was their wickedness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, but turning around, I think, makes more sense in context, but anyway. So. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's interesting because um, just to do the word study, it, it leaves that big question mark in your mind. What exactly is being said here? And yet when we see the way, you know, the Ninevites responded, and then we read that, you know, God God was, uh, uh, God relented concerning the calamity. We kind of understand that um, there was destruction implied in it, that there was there was something, something that they were, you know, uh, for them to to fear, but uh, but it, but it, it it's not really clear from the message itself, and so I just kind of it just sort of put that question in my mind: Did God, you know, want them to to think about that or, or consider that perhaps in some way? So say, say Miles, yeah, is it, uh, is it possible that the way this is worded that that the possibility of repentance is also preached? I'm kind of, that's kind of, yeah, kind of what it's led me to a little bit. Just wondering if that's, um, if that's sort of what's being hinted at, you know, to, well, to be turned around. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if it's ambiguous, then, uh, they're repenting in spite of the fact that they may have still been destroyed. So that's more genuine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's, that's interesting. And we'll look here at, uh, next at, at Nineveh's response. But, but one of the things that the king says is, who knows? You know, God may turn and, and relent. You know, he, he didn't have any guarantees in it. Um, and because there's no guarantee in that message, it's, it's, as we, as, as has been recorded, like I say, I don't know if it was a summary or not, but as we have it recorded in scripture, there was no guarantee that if they were to, uh, you know, change their change their way if they were to turn around that it would necessarily even save them. But they but in any case it did cause them to to recognize their their wickedness. So great points. Really good discussion. Thank you. I uh let's look at uh verses five through nine, uh Nineveh's response. Um and, and we can look at verse 6 there. Uh, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And uh, I actually just noticed here now, I hadn't, that, that the, the, the response to the word of the Lord here in, in, in Jonah is always to arise. Is <laughs> always to get up and, and go. And, and the king, did that, did that very thing. He arose from his throne. Um, and, uh, and so this, this expression here, sackcloth and, and ashes, and we're very familiar with that from throughout the scripture. Um, you know, everywhere biblically, they're an expression of humility. And, um, I just pulled out a couple of examples. Of course, there's, there's dozens of examples of, of the phrase sackcloth and ashes, but a couple of 
interesting ones. Uh, Job came to mind initially and in, in his response to the Lord. And then in a footnote, I, I was turned to Genesis 18, which didn't come to mind quickly. But but when I, I read it um, he, here, let's look at Genesis 18, 27. And Abraham replied, now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. And and that that verse there is what kind of, you know, connects this concept to um, to man's uh, original creation. You know, man is is just of the dust. You know, uh, uh, we uh, the the um, of the dusty man, dusty is kind of the way you know Paul talks about this being being of, in Adam, right? The man of the dust, and um, and so you realize it's a it's a there's a sense of humility in that um, in that expression as as Abraham uses it there, and then of course we know in Job's case where he um, he is humbled. Um, when the Lord uh, comes to him and uh, and declares his glory, and Job says, "Therefore I retract and I repent in in dust and ashes," and um, and so there's a, in other words, it's just saying, I, "I'm humbled, Lord. I'm I'm utterly humbled." Um, and we could look at many many other examples, of course, of putting on a sackcloth, the like a burlap sack, you know, just. Um, but uh but you know probably no no word better describes the Assyrians than proud. Um they were they were absolutely arrogant and and uh and they you know from an earthly perspective their power permitted that. Their their power to subdue nations and to rule the world um seemed unstoppable. And and um they were incredibly uh arrogant in that in that pride. But but with five Hebrew words, the the the, the Assyrians are are brought to their knees, um, which I think is remarkable that the word of the Lord has that kind of ability. You know, I, I was thinking about it this morning because I mean, right now, really, I I, I don't know if things things change over time, but uh, the U.S. has has been regarded as you know the world superpower for for quite some time, and it's hard to imagine. Uh, you know, your president uh, in sackcloth and ashes. I've never seen a president in anything other than a, a fine suit, you know. But can you imagine what word from the Lord would it take for, yeah. for the president to be found in sackcloth and ashes? Um, pretty pretty stunning to think about, I think. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. although, though, it may, though it may be appropriate, you know, I mean... <laughs> Um, but um, just trying to make sure my notes are where we at here. Yeah. So Nineveh, Nineveh's continue with Nineveh's response. Um, and and I, I I noticed that there's a there's a real contrast um between uh between the way Jonah responded to the word of the Lord and the way. The, the king of uh, of Nineveh responded to the word of the Lord, and um, there are a few places in Scripture. Actually, Matthew kind of points it out in in the beginning of his gospel. It's all the Gentiles. It's, it's the he has he has the Gentile kings coming to worship the the newborn uh, king, while you know the scribes just you know and and Herod they just you know 
well, the scribes were made in Jerusalem and, the, you know, um, and, and they, they have, will have nothing to do with him. But these Gentiles res- responded, you know, to a star. Um, and, and here we have uh, in this book the, the Israelite prophet who is rebelling against the word of the Lord and, and this Gentile king, this pagan, who instantaneously is in the belly of a fish before he would even um, grudgingly respond to the Lord. And, uh, and the king of Nineveh responded at, at you know, at, at five words. So in, in verse eight, we see that the Ninevites had a, um, and we can ask the question, well, is fear a wrong response? To the Lord, and you know, it's. I don't think it is. Um, there is a point at which a person has to be brought to recognize the terrifying situation of being a sinner in the hands of a just and wrathful God. Okay, so Psalm Psalm one eleven verse ten: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and then Proverbs nineteen twenty three: the fear of the Lord leads to life. Um, the the fear of the Lord is not. Life, it leads to life. Um, and of course, we know John 17, verse 3, that, that tells us uh, what is eternal life, and it is that they may know you, the only true God, even Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, so um, I want to ask the question, what could have possibly induced this entire proud nation to respond to the cry of one lonely prophet and to be humbled so so dramatically. And I think we have to recognize that the Spirit m- must have been doing a preparatory work right. ahead, of, ahead of Jonah. Um, the, the, spirit, the Spirit is the one who prepares hearts. And, and when we speak to someone and they respond positively, uh, it, it has very little, if, if nothing, to, to do with us. <laughs> Amen. <You know? laughs> Amen. Uh, because we got to remember, Jonah didn't even want to bring this message. <laughs> he was doing this grudgingly, and yet they responded. And so we, we see that that uh, that the the spirit was was the one who is at work here. So, um, and so in our last couple of minutes, let's look at uh, at God's uh, God's the results. So Nineveh's response, and then the results, and and we uh, see it in the words, "God relented, and He did not do it." Well, this opens up uh, a whole can of, of worms um, in terms of, you know, sovereignty questions, right? And, and you know, does God change his mind? Um, uh, is, is God's sovereignty mechanical? Um, do humans have personal choice? Um, you know, these are all issues that get debated by theologians. And frankly, these kinds of questions have led to a lot of useless wrangling about words. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, and, and I, you know, I, I said there, we, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think that we need to try to elevate or raise our thinking above God's mind. Um, you know, we can, we can simply recognize what the scripture tells us. It's yeah. clear. You know, God, God is a personal God. Uh, and that's the way he presents himself to us over and over in scripture. Um, he's a God who allows himself to be affected by his creatures. Um, and he reaches out to mankind. He desires that we respond to him and, and he in turn responds to us. Um, 
God is God is relational. He's 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 personal, um, and and he clearly cared about the Ninevites. He loved God. Loved the whole world. We, you know, in John three sixteen, we see um, that means God God loved the Ninevites as evil as wicked as they were, and he desired that they respond to him. And and that's next week. Um, I know this is just kind of you know touching the surface of God's response here, but I think it'll play in next week a little bit more as we look at chapter four, because next week we kind of get to get a, get a glimpse into God's heart and his compassion towards the Ninevites and the, the reason that he, that he sent Jonah in the first place. And, and uh, so it's a really neat, neat way that the, that the book ends, but, but that gives us, I, I, you know, there's a lot more stuff we could pull out and study in, in chapter three there. In Miles, yeah. Just a final point for us to think about and consider. Uh, the last lesson we had in Jonah stopped at verse nine in chapter two, and verse ten was not covered. And let me read it. And the Lord uh, spoke unto uh, the fish, and it vomited him, uh, meaning Jonah, up onto dry land. So McGee thinks that Jonah was dead in the belly of the fish. And if you look at what Christ says in referring in the, you know, the Gospel of Matthew back to Jonah, I mean, McGee's interpretation is that ultimately to make this a perfect prophecy in terms of the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection, that ultimately Jonah would have died within the fish. And we, we don't need to answer that question, but something for us to think about. I happen to believe that he he was not dead, but nevertheless, I mean, why would Christ refer to that if, in fact, he were not dead? So that verse we haven't <laughs> dealt with, and, and I don't, I'm not sure that we can really answer it succinctly. But anyway, just just to think about yeah. it. So you, you might think about two minutes yeah. next week on on that. I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Good point. I didn't I didn't notice that that verse had had hadn't been well, covered. So yeah. well, I got yeah, I got missed. The, the, the scheduler messed up. No, that's okay. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I should have paid more careful attention. But you know, Who's it's, a, anyway? it's a beautiful. It's another beautiful visual from the book of Jonah. You know, of uh, being vomited up on on dry land. Um, and I know I I, I have uh, heard Doctor McGee's position on that. Um, he he seems to almost stand alone in that. Um, he's pretty firm. He's pretty firm in it. Um, it, it would make it a more direct parallel, but you know one thing that was interesting. Um, Jeremy Thomas years ago taught a great series on on Jonah, um, and I'm probably drawing from that a significant amount in my thinking. But um, one of the things that he pointed out is that when Jonah was cast overboard, um, all those sailors saw is that Jonah sunk, and all they could have assumed is that he died, <laughs> right? And who would have guessed that he was swallowed by a fish down there and 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 survived? Uh, they 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 assumed him dead. They took him for dead. Um and uh, and and I mean Jonah or sorry Jeremy uh, kind of extrapolated a little bit and and made some assumptions I think, but he said they weren't that far from land because they were trying to row back to land. <laughs> the storm hit them right away, and and. He suggested that the, the boat actually returned to land because they were, they'd already tossed their cargo. What was the point in continuing to Tarshish? Um, so he assumed that they returned to land and, and would have, you know, like the, the grapevine, the, you know, 
word spread just as fast without the internet as it does with it, I think. And, and uh, because they would have told this story. We threw the guy into the sea and the storm stopped instantly. They would have told everyone they, they met. Now, again, that's, those are assumptions. But, but what Jeremy speculated is that perhaps the news of this prophet Jonah reached Nineveh before Jonah did. I, I don't know. But if, if so, Jonah's appearance, live and uh, right. relatively well, um, would have been a, a startling sign in and of itself to, to the Ninevites. Is it possible? I, I don't know. It's speculation. But, um, but uh, in any case, um, it, 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 it kind of, you know, the, the, it would have seemed in any case like a, like someone coming returning from the from the grave so right. we can talk about that a little more next week or if we fit it in so yeah, yeah that's good that's good great well thank you guys so much well, uh, thank you thank you sure enjoyed the time today so we'll see you again next week okay thanks well, thanks yeah, thank you thank you guys take care thank you. <laughs>